Oh my God, Kelly, here we are. I cannot believe we're actually doing this, but we'll get to this, we'll get to this. in our Meet Your Host episode. Yeah. So please be on the lookout for this. This is not the intro to Naked with Mimosas and Hot Sauce. However, this is an intro to our first episode. Yes. Yeah. That we just didn't want to sit on the content for longer than it needed to be sat on. I feel like it was such a good conversation that we were like, let's literally throw something on top of this. And you know, <laughs> a lot of that's what she said. <laughs> Watching you while I talk is the hardest thing ever. <laughs> but all jokes set aside, now I'm really sweating. Now it's been inappropriate. But we're really excited about the content we are starting to create and provide, hopefully, an outlet and resources for our listeners. But please, which is all coming. It's all coming. We're working. Me and Kelly both have full time jobs. We're trying to do this. That literally, we've decided is truly another more than a part time job. I feel like that we're thrown in and taking care of families and things like that. So bear with us as we do this. But I am so excited and happy and humbled, as is Kelly, of the friends and family that are so excited for this episode to launch and for us to officially be on all the podcasts. Sarah, what are they going to listen to for this next first episode? Like, What are they walking into? They're walking into a very candid and vulnerable conversation about how we can be the most impactful and effective white allies to our Black friends and family members that we love and cherish our relationships with and that we hope that some of this conversation resonates and is helpful to those out there that we don't know either. So that is our ultimate goal with this. Yeah. We want to open the doors for those who may need some awakening, some support, encouragement, and or just some resource. And hopefully this will fall in the hands of those who want to share our experiences that we are uncovering with our own friends and family and inner circle. You're not going to hear any music in the beginning. You're not going to hear any hype around how we're starting this first episode. It's just a raw conversation with our dear friend, Aaron. And without... Speaking of that music, though. Yeah. We thought that what a better way to do this, if anybody's interested in the future that's listening, that is local to us. Hell, if you're not local, it's fine. Yeah. But new you want to be our intro music or whatever, we'd love to kind of shout you out on here and use your music on here. There's a ton of generic, basic, free stuff we could use. And after listening to about seven of them, we decided absolutely not. We'd rather they're not be any <laughs> rather they're not be any music. So yes. you are about to walk into there's no kickoff to this at all except for us talking right now. When we quit talking, you are going to hear our friend Aaron talking about a rite of passage for a black girl, a hair comb, a hot comb actually, I'm sorry. So Listen to that. That's where the conversation starts off. We decided just to hit record in the middle of us talking with her, and we kind of just took it from there. So we hope you enjoy. We hope to hear from you guys. Our email address is mimosasandhotsauce at gmail.com. And without further ado, here you go. Unpacking the White Ally. That's a rites of passage for a Black child. That and a hot comb. Like, have you, do you know what a hot comb is? No. Okay. A hot comb is literally a comb that your parent puts on the stove. They warm it on the stove to straighten your hair. And if your mother's anything like mine, she has no like finesse about it. So she's like burning the S-H-I-T out of your, you know what I mean? Scalp trying to get it straight. Yeah, it's, I would literally, my mom always did my hair Sunday night for Monday. I would literally come downstairs and be like, <laughs> as soon as I would see it sitting on the stove. Cause my mom is heavy handed. Imagine a big metal comb. Think of your flat iron, but a comb. It has like the teeth and you warm it on a stove. Not like the cute stoves like we have, like a real stove. So it's hella hot. And then they take it, they're like blowing on it. You're like, bitch, there is not enough like air to cool a fucking metal comb that you're about to put next to my ear and my scalp. That's like when you get your eyebrows waxed and they're like dipping the wax neck. Yeah, you're like, no. It was so bad. That's why I was so happy when I finally went natural. But at that time, it was not cute for black girls to have kinky, curly hair. Like, now it's like a cute thing to have and everyone's into it. But at the time, I remember even as an adult, my grandfather, was he died when he was 92. But he was the era of, that was not presentable. So I remember him being like, so you just going, did you pay somebody to do that to your hair? Like, he did not understand why I was wearing my hair in Afro. Like, he was just like very confused by that whole thing. Oh, interesting. That is interesting. So all that to say, we don't care about you getting your cornrows because we cried. I didn't bring it, didn't bring it up. <laughs> Kelly brought it up. 
Because she was just saying, all I'm saying is that I empathize with the whatever process that that, and it would be all red. red. I was going to say, did you get like bumps and little breakouts? Yeah, that should have been the first sign that it was not. And for some reason, I went back one more time to get it done, and that was the last time. That actually irks me when I'm on vacation. When you go on vacation, there's little white girls running around with, I'm like, why are you doing that? Or do you remember when you go to like, <laughs> you get like beads? I'm like, oh. You go to the Bahamas, I've only been to the Bahamas one time off of a cruise. And like the thing was like for them to sew the, or like tie in the the yarn thing. The yarn. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> it's just a so weird thing. Like, we, like we don't be like. Come. If that was how somebody was making money and you caught this, like it was innocent then, right? Like in the, Yeah. Yeah. Like for a seven year old girl to run around, no matter her skin color, if she wanted something fun with her hair, it's like whatever, if that made the money on the island. Then yeah. You know what I mean? In the Bahamas, that was fine. But it's funny you say that too, because even though, like, I even think about it now where. When you said the seven-year-old girl, it's cute for her to do that. I was just thinking to myself how often for like a white little girl to like be like, oh, I wanted to get purple in my hair. Like, it's like, oh, that's so fun and cute. Whereas when a black little girl does it, it's like, mm, some people view that as being ghetto or too grown or like, it's just interesting, like the so, dynamics of, of that. Really Let's unpack that. Like, where did that come from? Like, where does the stigma of that come from? Because I don't care. Hair color to me, I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter. Well, I mean, I think it's hair color in general, right? So like take it out of race, right? There were times where I felt like if I wanted to do something different with my hair, even now, like right now I have blonde braids. It took me so many years to do blonde braids because I was afraid that it would be perceived as being unprofessional or ghetto or whatever, right? And so I even had last year, I went to like a very prestigious fellowship program. And my boss at the time, my boss's boss made a comment that my nails at the time were neon yellow. And he made a joke about it, but I knew that that was his way of telling me that he felt my nail color was unprofessional. But there's this idea of what people view to be professional. Not even my brother, he had dreadlocks for forever. My brother's also 15 years older than me, but in 1990 something, when he was looking for a job, my dad was very like vocal with him about how dreadlocks would be perceived to be unprofessional. You're a black male and you have dreadlocks. The world is going to think that you're a mess, not together, you know, all these different things. So appearance, I think is one thing, but I also think black people, we end up with an even higher like bar of how we dress, what we might look like, our hair is often a top. It's it's something that white people find to be very intriguing, but often comes off stupid. Stupid is a good word. I'll say I'll go with stupid or ignorant, right? And so even in a workplace, your hair is often a you know like a topic of conversation. So I just think black people in professional environments have had to let certain things slide at times when we feel like why is what I have on a comment or why is my appearance a comment when you got bangs today and I didn't say anything. Becky has bangs. <laughs> We just jumped quite right into that. But we should just yeah, going, right? well, I agree. The voice that you've heard talking for the majority <laughs> of this time. One of my closest friends, Aaron. Aaron and I met through Buckhead Church in small group. It's funny. I have a friend. I think I told you this last week. He's IG obsessed with Sarah Beth. <laughs> I just think she's cute. And he finally was, every time I post, he's like, hey, Sarah Beth, every time. And so then he's like, he asked me the other day, he's like, how did you guys meet, by the way? And I was like, Bible study. <laughs> And he, and he literally was like, I think it was like a post, a picture of us out. Yeah. And he's like, you guys do not look like you're following Jesus that night. And I'm like, oh, hush. That is probably true. Jesus has himself Right. Uh, but we met through a small group. You were pregnant with Drex. But I think it's been like eight. I know Drex is only five and a half, what, five and a half years old. Yeah. So I guess we've probably known each other like six seven. years, something seven. seven. Yeah, seven years. The group dismantled for no other reason, just it's what kind of normal for small groups to do that at some point. And Aaron and I like dabbled in like one night we went out just to like meet for drinks one night. And one night I think we were like testing the waters and like conversation. (laughs) Is this just a a group friendship through small group? Are we going to be friends? Like whatever. And then it kind of just blossomed from there. Aaron to me is 1000% like. I'm sure she has numerous times that she could roll her eyes out about me calling her at seven o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock at night <laughs> or something that I needed when it came to my son. She is the mama bear of my life when it comes to parenting. I think she's a, she is not an old soul in her normal, like in real, like 100% of her life, but she's an old soul when it comes to being a parent. She is so great with Drexel. Oh, thank um, you. She helps me a lot and my decisions with Steel. 
I could not think of anybody else perfect for this first episode than to have her on. So we appreciate you coming on. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. You want to give us some background on you? Yeah. So I am Erin. I have been working in education. Yes, (laughs) two ends. Don't get me started. My parents just had to be extra. It's just... Oh, I know nothing about them. So I spent my whole life with like, oh, Erin with two ends. Erin. Oh my God, you're so smart. Shut up. So all that to say, I've been in education the last 10 years. And so my passion is education. I'm an edpreneur. I love teacher development and coaching and just advocating for brown and black students and teachers. I'm a mommy and a wife and all of those great things. So that's kind of me in a nutshell, I guess. She's a boss. She's awesome. <laughs> She's super. Why do you do that? We always like, undercut ourselves. That's a topic for another. Thing. It is another topic. I don't know, man. I'm working on it. Because by the way, she's starting a new business. I am. In July. She's July 1. Um, and she's gorgeous and beautiful and she is sure as hell taught Kelly and I a lot just in the I mean the thing about what we just texted her a little bit ago before she showed up in her honesty so we had her here for honest transparent conversation it matters I think it's easy for us to be really comfortable as white women we Sarah Beth and I just definitely want to make sure that we open dialogue and give some safe space asking questions and kind of just like I love the word you said unpacking unpacking some stuff that we need to We need to unpack. And the purpose of our podcast originally was to absolutely be consciously uncomfortable. I think that's part of our mission. It's always been part of our passion. And we didn't think we were necessarily going to start with a very heavy conversation, but there was no other way around it. It is what we're living and breathing every day to try to unpack what is happening, how we can make actual steps towards something in a movement And we want to be able to be the right type of ally for people. And I think the first question that, you know, Sarah Beth and I had with Aaron that really allowed us to embrace this conversation as our first episode is what does that even mean? (laughs) You know, we hear that all the time and we think we follow up on a hashtag. Yeah. And it's very mainstream. And I want to be able to go to bed at night knowing that I understand what it means. I am also having the follow through and the action items that I can one, do myself and also be able to share with people around me. So I think in full transparency, even the idea of an ally is new to black people because I feel like we've just been doing this thing by ourselves. I feel like I should preface with like, I am not speaking for all black people, you know, (laughs) but I might say we. So I know that that's never, I've never counted on a white person or someone who's not black to pretty much do anything for me when it came to my blackness. Right. And so I think this idea of an ally is even new for us as a community but the fight that we've been in is not new, right. right? Like one of the things I've even been thinking about over the last couple of weeks is like, why George Floyd, right? Like why this incident? Because we've had numerous. And so I don't know if it's been the pandemic. I don't know what it is. I'm not questioning in a negative way, but I'm just always curious. To, like what made you decide now right. to plug in? Was it that we've been at home with our families? Maybe people are more aware, like, time. People have been doing more soul searching. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like what, I don't know what it is, but all that to say, I've even been kind of thinking about like, well, what would I want an ally to look like in my community? Cause I think my biggest fear is that we've got momentum going, we've got movement going. And then in three weeks when basketball starts or when whatever the next, right. That we're like, Oh, black lives matter. You know, I like, that's the end of it. So I think first, as an ally, you've got to really understand the idea of racism. For one, I feel like white people think that racism is like a conscious thought. The way we learned racism was calling someone the N-word. It was calling someone out of their name. It's, you know, whites only signs and these sorts of things, right? But that has evolved. And so I think people think that as long as I don't think bad things, I'm not racist. And that's not what racism is, right? Like racism is a system. It's very complex. There's a lot of pieces and parts to it. And so you may have seen a lot on social media, this idea of not being a racist, but being an anti-racist, right? Because an racist is like a very passive thing, right? right? To say, oh, I'm not racist. An anti-racist is more of like action oriented and not passive and requires you to like put action behind it, speak up, dismantle when you see something, say something, that's an anti-racist questioning policy, stuff like that. So I think first it's like having a really good understanding of what racism is. Yeah, I agree. 
in order to be able to attack it. I think that you said something is people, they don't feel like they're manifesting negative thoughts about people of color and they're going along a very comfortable life and they are minding their own business. They absolutely fall asleep very securely thinking that I'm not a racist, but then they go to work every day and they're surrounded by the same people that look like them. And then they're not speaking up or they're not noticing and bringing things to the table that really should be topics of conversation at board meetings and leadership meetings and strategy sessions when you're planning for 2021. It's like, great. Where's our diversity and inclusion council? Like the time is now and it takes that awareness and acknowledgement and being able to be awakened for us to move that needle. You've got to be okay with being uncomfortable. Like you have to be okay with knowing you're going to ruffle some feathers Mm -hmm. and you're going to make some people uncomfortable and that's okay. And you might not be liked. Your lunch buddy might not want to go have lunch with you anymore. Right. But you've got to be okay with that. We have to be okay with not feeling the silence. And when you ask an uncomfortable question, we're so eager to fill that silence yep. with something to make them comfortable, right? Versus that silence alone. Allow them to be fidgety because that is the moment when the light bulbs are coming on yeah. and that the real acknowledgement happens. And I think we need to be a little bit careful to say it's okay not to know, but it's not okay to acknowledge it and not do anything about it. Well, and then here's the not know part, right? Like, I think if you're going to be an ally, you have to educate yourself. Mm-hmm. So read a book. <laughs> audiobook even if you like that sort of thing. I personally do not believe in audiobooks, but if that's your jam, do it. Podcasts, articles, like if nothing else, now there is pl- documentaries. There are plenty of ways for you to learn something, right? But you cannot be out here trying to be an ally to black people and you don't know the history of what has happened in this country and you are also have not done the personal work, right? Because we all have our own bias. We all have our own stereotypes. I don't care how great and you think you are, they're there. Right. And so if you don't do the work around those things, it's, you're not going to be an ally. Even if your heart's in the right place, you have not done the inner work that is required to actively sit there in brown and black communities and be an ally. And you have to check that stuff because when you start entering brown and black communities, you are now the minority and white people are not used to being the minority. Black people, we know how to just like, okay, it's me and two other people in here. Fine. Automatically, that is a foreign concept for white people. And so you have got to start doing that work so that when you find yourself in those brown and black communities, you're not uncomfortable. My husband and I Mm -hmm. watched last night a documentary. So, you know, I post, I share on social media. like Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. He's not an outgo. He's just not a person that posts that. And it's not about the posting, right? I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to something that Mm -hmm. I want to talk about. So one of the things that I love about you is that you have unapologetic expectations of the white people that you allow in a very close, intimate relationship with you. And you and I've had conversations in the past. I can't remember what I tried racking my brain over. Well, I hate to even have to say what's shooting or what killing or whatever. Right, right. You ask, bring it up. Right. I don't know what to say. I know what I feel, but I don't know what to say. And you're like, I think you said something like you being silent, though, is not helping anything. Like you've Mm -hmm. got to say... I've got to feel like you're speaking. It took me even longer, right? Because I just started getting vocal a couple months ago, but I was talking to my husband about it and we were talking about how you can't not, even if you're out, if you're reaching out as one-on-one to people, if you don't want to do it in a, in a right, way, right, public way. Right. But we laid in bed last night. We both have agreed how important it is to us to make sure we're doing our part inside these four walls with our son. Right. And then, because that's all we can control. I can't control if the house next door is doing what they should be doing. Right. Kids, right. Right. But we lay down in bed last night and watched 13th. Have you seen that? Yep. I was telling Kelly, she has a, a tour. I was like, please watch it. Like, obviously it's a very, it starts very, very, very heavy. The night I watched, I could not sleep. I boohoo cried. It was, um, <laughs> and however much that's worth to you on my side, it was in me and Helen talked about it today when we were at the March. Like it was super hard for me to take in because I don't like the representation of, Literally, it looked like people would go to happy hour watching a lynching, right? Like, and it was all people that don't associate me with that, right? Like, that's not. Yeah, there's that guilt, that white guilt. Yeah. So anyways, and I'm 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 long-winded here, but we unpacked some of that, like watching it last night. And probably the part that I'm sure I learned some of the stuff in history. And I was telling Helen today, like, I feel bad because I'm sure I learned it at some point. And maybe it just didn't stick or didn't resonate. But 
what the 13th Amendment said, the loopholes that are in it, how they ended up getting through that loophole yep. to turn people into criminals. Yep. And like yep. Process. yep. It was that eye opening documentary, which is essentially why they put it together, right? Yep. Because they wanted it to play that role. I don't think we learned all that in history. I think we, we don't, right? The 13th Amendment. I don't think we learned loopholes. No. I think what Aaron was said before was what racism kind of looked like to the majority of the white kids or actually in any history class, it's the signs and the right. drinking fountains. Right. Right. Well, right. And then well, MLK. Right. Yes. Yeah. Those things. Right. But that was a segregation piece. I missed the 13th event. I missed the whole loophole. The loophole yeah. thing was. But I'm in drinking fountains no longer in my mind. As well, that's why though, when you tell sometimes a white person, like it hasn't changed, they're like, well, yes, it has. Like, no, it just took a different Form. appearance. Right. right. Yeah. It's now it's systemic. It's, it's a system. It's not as overt. You know what yeah, I mean? Visual yes. 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 And sometimes I think that could is actually worse. Like I'd almost rather know you're a bigot than share coffee with you every day and then be like, well, I'll be. Yeah. So I know. I know exactly who you are. Because now we. Yeah. We kind of, we know. know Right. Right. However, it's like you can be incognito. Well, and the thing it's like now it's in our politics. It's in our healthcare system. It's in our education system. It's in all of sports our sports. It's in all of those things. Right. And it's like, but that's why that documentary is powerful. Right. Because that is something that if you didn't know that you understand the plight and the argument that we're saying, I think sometimes white people have viewed black people as like complaining or like there's that whole like bootstrap thing. And like, well, we all have equal ground. And it's like, No, like for some, and maybe, you know, being my lens as an educator, I'm like, for some of my kids, they are set up for failure from the very beginning, just based off of their zip code, Mm -hmm. just off of their zip code. Right. And so this idea of like, you just work hard and like, it'll all be good. That's not black people's story. It never has been. And so until we recognize that it's going to continue to be the same thing. So documentaries like that are very powerful because it's just showing you straight up like the government didn't even set us up for success. Right. Let alone economics now. That is a whole nother 13 series. Well, they said, I think one of the one of the professors that spoke on it said they that black people automatically got pushed into a second class, basically. She said it so articulately. I thought it's a word. <laughs> Sarah Beth is the grammar police, if you were unaware. <laughs> but they automatically, and I think other countries do that regardless of race like, like a caste system like, yes I ca- yes but how do you let somebody out of that there is no it's almost like we never got past it like i know often when i'm thinking about like drexel and his future like one of the things i always think about is being able to pass him wealth because that's not something that historically black families have been able to do i have friends black or white who've been able to like not have student loans it sounds like it's not a big deal, but it, we all know as adults, it's a huge deal to not have student loans or their wedding present was a down payment on their first home. Stuff like that. That's huge, right? Or like being able to say my father or whatever passed me two properties. Stuff like that. I have a business in my name and I have I think to carry this on. That's the kind of stuff that is going to make a difference for people of color is being able to like be a little bit of like step ahead. Because the people we keep voting into office, the people that we let control government and funding and all of those sorts of things, they're not helping us to like even the field or to get a leg up. And so you're constantly behind. Even if you consider yourself to be middle class, it's not the same. And we all know that the gap between middle class and the rich is just getting wider and wider and wider. So I think some of it too is just understanding that when you go to vote, when you are putting judges in seats, when you're putting politicians in office, when you're voting for your sheriff, like often we vote for like the main people on the ballot. And it's like, no, like at the end of the day, those local choices that we're making matter. Think about how much we've seen police chiefs in this last month. I wouldn't have known our police chief if she walked by, honestly. Right. And so It's like really thinking about the people that you're putting in positions of power because that's part of the shift of racism. So I read something, we all probably did because it's mainstream, about what if 2020 is it canceled? Mm. That was one thing that was just super good. Because I think we all woke up on 
what, March 2nd, this COVID <laughs> or whatever. And we're all like, what is happening? What is happening? Then April 2nd rolls around and now we're definitely quarantined. And everyone's like, all right, birthdays are canceled. Like everything, you know, 2020 canceled. And I think Sarah Beth and I were even thinking about having a New Year's Eve party, a new kickoff, right? Let's kick this off differently. And when those, COVID is over, let's restart 2020, right? Yeah, yeah. And the post I'm re- referencing is, what if 2020 isn't canceled? What if that's the year we've all been waiting for? A year so uncomfortable, so painful, so scary, and so raw that it finally forces us to grow. A year that screams so loud, finally awakening us from the ignorant slumber. A year we finally accept the need for change, declare change, work for change, become the change. A year we finally band together instead of pushing each other farther apart. 2020 isn't canceled, but rather all the most important year of them all. Leslie Dwight. I agree. I mean, I have a friend... Shout out to Angelica Ray, who is an intuitive, an amazing intuitive. But she told me weeks, like months ago, when this first was happening, like that it was a necessary thing. Like the universe is shifting. Hold on. It's a time to go inward. It is a time for reflection. It is a time to get close to God or whomever it is that you're higher being. But essentially, like this is necessary to start anew. Right. And I had another friend who I had a similar conversation with where she just felt like kind of in her soul of like, This is something different, right? And like, yeah, I mean, I think it's all your outlook. I think in the beginning, we were all very, I know I remember being at a conference and being like, there is no way school is closing. These people are crazy. And then a week later, I was like, oh my God, (laughs) virtual learning. Everybody get your shit and let's get out. You know, like that was- you and Helen were texting. We're like, I text the three of us have like this mom text going on, and I'm like, we guys, we can get, we can make it through this one day. I'll have all the kids the next day. Helen will have all of them the next day. Aaron will have all of them, and Aaron's like, Drexel school's over. Right. I I didn't have to suffer quite as long as everyone. Whatever. So it was funny because you almost tried to figure out how you could band together because I don't know how people did that with more than one child and that's going down a whole right blessings to them but yeah no i do believe it is 2020 is like a necessary thing that's why i just hope that everything that's happening right now is for a reason i just hope that it sticks i hope that people feel brave i hope that like something comes out of it that we're not waiting for the next unnecessary murder for us well all murders are unnecessary but you get what i'm saying for us to feel like we're back here again but it does feel like there's a shift I feel I've said the other day, like if you haven't been using this time to reflect on yourself and like what you want to do with your life and what your purpose is and like deal with all that gunk that we all have, like I feel bad for you. And I wish that you would have used this time because I don't know when we would have a time like this again where you're just like with your family and like connecting and like just being yeah. we are so go 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 and all the time the time we're gonna go and buy 19 rolls of toilet paper <laughs> right or like <laughs> i had some i had two random things of wipes in my trunk and my friend was like yo <laughs> you just got wipes in your back like you don't even need to use them and i'm like <laughs> Right. I'm like, calm down. Don't say that too loudly. I don't want to get robbed. Right. Shit. But like, you're just riding around with two full canisters. Like, are you rich? I mean, mind your business. Came back from Dallas and she brought all of us a hand sanitizer. She came back from Mother State weekend and she walks into the house and handed me a thing of hand sanitizer. And I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Like, it was literally, it came from some local place in Dallas that she just went to and they were making hand sanitizer. I got some from Clear. Right. Like, it was. Such a wanted thing. I'm yeah. Like, I'm going to tuck this in the back of my couch. Yeah. No yeah. I got some from Clear. I, we, I traveled last week and at the Clear desk, they gave me two little pump sanitizer. I said, well, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> Wait, more? Right. So, See more where that came from? I told Kelly that I kind of wanted to go. I think this is a good time to like go down this route for a second. But like, so you know that today, I, and all, I'm 39 years old. Today no. My first time, you thought 21. I thought maybe. Hashtag Botox. <laughs> <laughs> It was my first ever time I went to a protest. Yeah. How was that? So I knew I had originally screenshot one for yesterday that I was wanted to try to go to and it didn't work out. And so when Helen kind of posted today and and another um, like group me thing, Helen and I went together to a protest march and I feel like it was one. I I don't have anything else to compare it to. What I would tell you is I'm super disappointed in how the news has Mm -hmm. uh, shared and portrayed. Mm -hmm. 
what's been happening. I'm not saying that negative things have not been happening. Right. I have not shared those, the positive stuff. Yeah. You have to believe if you're not on social media, I get that some people are like, it's almost kind of like a cool thing to be like, I'm not on that thing or I'm not on whatever. I do feel like you're missing out on stuff right now. You're missing out on really cool stories of people that have done powerful things in the moment, like a protest. Right. That news is not showing. And so I saw today nothing but peaceful protest. And it was, we got dropped off after they'd already started and we got right in the middle of the mix. Everyone had all sorts of different kinds of signs. It was signs. It was just a really cool thing to experience. I wish we hadn't had to be experienced, right? It's like this. Yeah, but it's like, it's like a powerful thing that you're thankful for, but yeah, I get it. Right, right, right. So Helen and I both went through our moments of like, I've had lots of tears and I know that that doesn't, me and Kelly were talking about this earlier, like, you might listen to me say that and be like, thanks a lot for that. Jim, no clue. Like whatever, like my tears are for anybody, whether I'm yeah, yeah. if there's any relation or not, like, I'm sorry that we're where we're at. Right. right. Well, and then also like, I think your tears may not, I don't look at your tears that way. Personally, I, this might not be a favorable like opinion, but I also like, I guess knowing you, I know like the world that you want your son to grow up in also. So I think there's like some of that too. Like, I think as a parent also, it's like sadness of like, is this what the world is going to be like for my son is still going to be having to protest when he's 21 or can we have our shit together? That sort of thing. And that's what it is. Like my brother-in-law wrote me and said, you're my biggest, are you, I, I mm-hmm. like his fears, like if Drex, Cam and Steel are driving around somewhere and they get pulled over 15 years from now, are we going to be in the same state? Like, Lord willing, we are not in the same place, right? Because because my son's definitely not going to have the weed. Let's be very clear. <laughs> At the rate we're going, he'll be the one snitching. He'll be like, uh, officer, over here. This over here. one has the weed. It's completely his. I think he got it from his dad. It is not mine. Drexel is probably one of the most sensitive. He's so sweet. Um, um, yeah, my son's gonna be over like, do you want me to detain him, sir? I can take care of it. <laughs> but I think Helen had her emotions, which I told her that I would love to have her back on a future episode to talk about to unpack like we won't go in the background. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talk a lot about that. And I told her to be vulnerable and talking about that. Like, I think her story is not a, a soul. A, a Absolutely one. not. So I'm looking forward to her coming on to talk about that. But we both had that powerful moment of like, I'm standing with you. I'm here with you. Like all of us around. If I'm standing here walking with you down the street, like I'm with you. Right. And if I could have, I almost wanted to make my sign say, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I'm sorry that we have to be here. And I'm sorry that. Yes, but you don't need to own that guilt. Like that is, I bet it is. But at the same time, it's like about, I think the difference is I feel like there are white people who are just like, oh, I'm sorry, but they're not putting the action behind it. Like it's the same way when you're dating someone or you're married. It's like, okay, you keep saying you're sorry, but you keep coming home late. So are you going to change it or not? Like, what are we going to do? Right. So I think it's like less about the tears and less about the guilt and more about what is that guilt going to like spur you to do? I think you make a good point is because those emotions, whether if it's guilt, vulnerability, sorrow, that then turns the intention back onto us and our emotions. And not to say that we don't have things that we have to unpack, but we acknowledge it just like the stages of grief, right? Yeah. Acknowledge it. Then we have to put it back over where it belongs and then focus on the the task at hand. So I think the thing that we have to keep in mind, like if you're trying to be an ally, is just remember that even the idea of being an ally is a privilege, right? Like it's a privilege to be learning about racism and to deal with it every day. So there's this piece of being okay with just the idea of like, this is an uncomfortable space. And I think everyone's different. Even if you're black, like I haven't been to a physical protest, right? But I don't feel like I haven't supported or donated or, you know, whatever it is that I want to do to support the movement. And so I think people also have to find their voice in the matter, right? So another way that you can be an ally is to donate. If financially you can donate money, great. There are organizations that are helping with people's bail who are actually on the front lines doing the protesting, doing the work. Think about your community. What local groups, what local charities are present that help 
in the brown and black community. That could be a church. That could be a domestic violence charity. That could be something with schools. That could be local lawyers that a lot of lawyers are trying to do pro bono work, stuff like that. So there's a lot of options. Like if you are a person who's either doesn't have time or doesn't feel comfortable getting out in the physical protest and you have the financial means to do it, donate, ask. Like that's a perfect way to support. There's a lot of GoFundMes. Make sure you've got the right GoFundMe that you're going to, right? But like Brianna Taylor at this point where we're taping, nobody's been arrested for her murder. You know, there's a lot of ongoing cases that still need support and families that need support. So like that's a way to also be like a strong ally is to donate. Uh, you recommend a finding the kind of organization to support. And the reason why I bring that up is like, say I wanted to do something with plate sculpture, right? We do some like fundraising workout class or whatever. Like, do we keep it local? Do we take away from the overall message if we keep it local to Atlanta and help them? I don't think so. I don't think so because at the end of the day, like this is the community that you're in, right? And so I think I'm all about finding your passion because I feel like when you find your passion, like that's where I would like focus my energy on donating or like my time. So like maybe I want to volunteer, physically volunteer. If I'm really passionate about working out health, right? We know that there are a ton of health disparities in our healthcare system, right? There's discrimination that even occurs there, right? So if you're a person who loves to work out, maybe it's like, all right, I'm going to talk with my local gym and I want to host six low income families to come and do a workout with me. Or I want to find some teenage girls that, because, Black girls are no different than white girls. Like teenage black girls are still trying to be cute, right? And I want to buy them. I want to sponsor a membership for them for a month to be able to, right? So like, it doesn't have to be about getting out the sign and marching down the street. Find like your passion. If it's education, find your local school, find your title one school, donate books, donate your time, supplies. Y'all know as an educator, I'm constantly like, my kids don't have this. They don't have that. I know like personally with prime example, one of the things that my students love is a school store. They get pretend money for their good behavior and grades and they want to spend it on folders and pencils and all the like knickknack random stuff that we liked when we were kids. Like that's a prime example. Like, hey, I'm going to, here's a hundred dollars on Amazon. I want to order gifts for your kids. Like you can donate in all kinds of different ways and you're, whether that's physically volunteer or money. And I think when you put it with your passion, maybe you love dance, maybe you love the arts. Think about how many programs there are out there for providing instruments, right? For kids to learn or sponsor somebody's field trip. Like if you know anything about one being a title one school, but then COVID, our budgets have been hit. What do you think has been the first thing to go? Field trips. trips, Anything like that, right? Like be like, I'm going to sponsor a field trip. So there are things that you can do. Just curiosity. curiosity. Yeah. It really depends because you can really get especially if you're a Title I school, a lot of places will give you like a discount, but transportation is a big thing. So you always have to pay for a bus to come and right. bus your kids. Most schools try and stay between like 10 to $15 per kid to go on an actual field trip. But just the idea of like, I think if you find whatever it is that you're passionate about, I mean, some people are passionate about chess. There's chess clubs out there. There's, you know, like those are the things where I think if you just find what your passion is and you find and research organizations that help in that area, it's even more fulfilling for you because it's something you're passionate about too. So we talked in Costa Rica, um, the three of us did that one night. You had mentioned at some point, like, do you see somewhere that say somebody doesn't have the monetary resources to go in and donate in that way, but they have the time. Mm -hmm. So while me and Kelly feel like it's equally as important for us to catch like middle school kids that are white and from whatever they're learning at home, say it's not the, what we hope they were learning in right. four walls and we're trying to reach them out there. Right. Would you agree or would you say that there are also black kids that are in that same age range that have maybe been taught that all white people are not? Yes. Yes. Very much so. Very much so. If you're going to try to go into a brown and black communities, you cannot go in there with the white savior mentality. You don't know better. You don't know more than anybody in that space, right? You are not the expert. So I think that's one thing. So you have to go into that. If you want to physically volunteer, you have to go in with the right mindset. But if it was just to have a conversation. But yes, I do think exposure is important. I think most of my kids have had very little interaction with white people. And I would probably say the majority of it has not been positive to the point that, and even their teachers, their caseworkers or something like that. Yes. But even like the majority of teachers that we have who are white, a lot of them do not make it. 
because they're not used to one being the minority and they're not used to our kids who are like, one, you're probably going to quit because all my other white teachers have quit. They put them through the ringer a little bit more. It makes me think about um, Dangerous Minds or something. Yeah, but that's that idea of white savior. I'm going to come in and save all the little black children and make them smart. Like, no. She had to get down on her. She had to get down on their level. Right. But there's like a piece of like of you have to be okay with like for once in your life being put through the ringer and understanding that for my kids, they look at you as like, I don't know any white people. I don't trust you. Right. And honestly, though, I can think of a few white teachers within my school have been like super successful with our kids. And the funny thing is my kids thought that they were just light skinned and black. Like literally we're like, you light skinned. And that's, that teacher was like, I'm white. And they're like, no, you can't be. Like you love on us. You're here every day. You like, you go out of your way for us. You bring me lunch. Like in their brain, there was no way that a white person was going out of their way or could love them in that way. At the end of the day, they're still kids. Sure. It's still important that you build relationships, but you also have to understand that it might take time. And if you're oh white person that's not cool with being uncomfortable, you might tap out first. Like, okay, well, I've met with this student three weeks trying to mentor them and they don't, I don't seem to be making any headway. So I'm good here. Right. And that doesn't have to be the case, but it's about being okay with being uncomfortable. I do think it's important for them to, any sort of mentoring is important, whether you're white or black. Like, I feel like what about just the conversation? So mentoring is another level that I think it takes a special person for that commitment piece. And then, like you said, I think oftentimes it's really easy to tap out if it's too draining, too uncomfortable. But what about something is like either speaking or just having some type of conversation, dialogue, almost a curriculum? I mean, honestly, I don't know if it's like really for black kids to have a curriculum as more as it is for white kids to have a curriculum. I think it's more important at this stage in the game for white kids to be in schools learning about because the reality is the way that black and white kids anybody really learns about black people is like we start on a slave ship that's not true right like we have a history that goes all the way back to africa with kings and queens and whole civilizations and the first person on earth was discovered in africa and they renamed her lucy and she was african like people don't know that black people themselves when we go to school we are taught slave ship yep You know, we were stolen from Africa. We were slaves. And like, even the idea of using the term slave versus the enslaved. Slave sounds like you went along with the shit when you didn't. Enslaved is like, no, 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 no. I was enslaved. (laughs) I was put into this. I did not like willingly go into that. So I do think that there's even this idea of like the power of thinking of a black person being taught that their ancestors were slave. And then think about the power of a white person being taught that black people were slaves. Like, and that's where their existence started. So I think like rather than focusing on black kids learning about or having conversations with white people, it's more about like white people really having conversations with themselves and what they're doing within their own homes. And like, if I'm a parent, do I feel okay with my kid not having any black classmates? Do I feel okay with my child never having a black teacher? Do I feel okay with the fact that my child's school only celebrates Black history and Black History Month? So it's also being able to say as a parent of a white child, like, I'm going to make an effort to be anti-racist and expose my child to other races. What shows do they watch? Do they watch shows with any brown characters? If they do, are the characters stereotypical? Do my kids' books, what does my kids' library look like at home? Is it all white people? The same effort that you make to take your kids, my friend did a recent podcast, and he talked about you plan the outing to the zoo, you plan the outing to the aquarium, plan your outing to the civil rights music. Like, we're lucky to be in Atlanta, right, where we can just... I mean, I remember, and I feel bad now that I'm thinking about it too, but it was just like a time thing as we're all so busy, but... Black History Month, my son was just like, I want to go to MLK's house. I want to go to MLK's house. We didn't go, right? But like the idea of like MLK's house is 15 minutes down the road. You make the effort to make sure your kid learns Mandarin and has karate and all these things that we all do because we think we have to be competitive and we pay for Kumon and like all these things, right? But there is like a rich history here. It's just about intentionality. The same intentionality you put on learning times tables, like you should also be like, okay, at my house, we do Black Friday. It's Black Friday. We're going to learn about somebody Black today. 
it's that level of intentionality that parents need to do. And like, there's a fine line between being an ally and like, you do not, even in this example like of us, this podcast here, right? Like you two could easily as two white women get on here and talk back and forth all day about racism, right? But like having me as a black woman on, like the idea is that as my allies, you help elevate my voice, not speak for me. And so it's the same idea. Like in this work, the reality is the way our society is set up. Your voice still does have more power than mine. So it's like thinking about being intentional about using it. If we're at a PTA meeting and I'm standing up and I'm saying, hey, you guys don't have a African-American history program or even like in your school. There's no class for that. Like, don't you guys think like really black history is everyone's history? This country would not be what it is without us, right? We should have that. There's a power in Sarah Beth or Kelly standing next to me as I'm saying that and showing your support of like, yes, I want my white child to also know black history as well, like, but not speaking for me. So it's like finding the line between being a support and not like stealing the light either. You gave an example of, it wasn't an example. It was a real life scenario and hopefully you're okay with me bringing it mm-hmm. You guys moved to a new neighborhood. Congratulations, by the way, on your new home. And you had a school right outside your neighborhood that drugs could have gone to, right? It would have been super easy for y'all to go to. And y'all are now driving, what, 25 minutes to another school? Yeah, about 15, 20 and private. So we're paying. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's right. Yeah. So that, by the way, that could go down an entire different thing, right? Steel could be going into free pre-K around us, but there was not any, like, it was like, do you think, I didn't know if it was, we could go down a whole different thing, right, for that. So we'll be paying for pre-K for Steel 2. But you guys chose not to go to that school. Could you give some insight onto why you did that? And then you kind of held that school accountable, right? Did you give that feedback to them? I did. Okay. Yeah. So on paper, it's one of the schools that's like highly rated in the area that we live in. So we went on the tour and I just, one, was shocked by the amount of white teachers. It was just not diverse. And we don't live in podunk wherever. Also, I admit I have a different lens as an educator and as an administrator. So I always go in with a little bit more like sass in there. But I'm looking like, okay, there's one black teacher out of all these teachers. To me, that means that you have not even active. I I know there are black people have got to be applying. We live in Atlanta. So that to me means, okay, you either don't value teachers of color or you're not really actively recruiting them either because there's one. And when I say one, I mean there was one. And then it just so happened that it was February, which, again, I believe that Black history should be 365. But at a minimum, I expect in February to see something. And I walked that whole building. And I remember looking at the bulletin boards. And there was like snowmen up there. But there was no Black history anything. And I was like, okay, it doesn't even snow in Georgia. Like, why is there? Why are you using this space to highlight a snowman instead of? Black history. And I went to the library and I said, okay, well, surely there's going to be some books pulled out, displayed for Black history. No. And then I saw one sign. It was over the water fountain. It was just like a very small, like copy paper sheet. And it was for like optional, like Black history trivia. And I remember I looked at Drexel's father and I was like, yeah, we can go. We don't need to stay for the Q&A. Like I'm not. I felt like it would do my son a disservice to put him in an environment where he didn't see people who look like him, who he was, wasn't celebrated. And selfishly, I'm a full-time working mom. I also thought to myself, or Aaron, you could send him here, but that just means you've got to be on the PTA. You've got to be super active and you're just going to have to like raise hell for a year or two to get the school where it needs to be. And for me at that time, the reality was just like, I don't have that capacity. So we toured another school, a private school, but that is very diverse in staff and in students and just like a rigorous school. And so while that wasn't the plan was to pay for school, I just could not put my black boy in an environment where I felt like he would not be celebrated. Absolutely. At the same time, though, there was some other black parents on the tour who looked completely like impressed. And I was like, okay, well... Mm-hmm. Before Sky so really interrupted, we were talking about supporting Black-owned business, yeah. right? So if you're going to be an ally, one of the things you have to be sure to do is put money 
into brown and black communities. We are super lucky because we live in Atlanta, mm-hmm. right? And we have black owned everything possible. All it takes is a little Google and research. So it's just being intentional. Maybe in your household, it's some people do like takeout on Fridays. Okay. Maybe your takeout on Fridays, you're going to get it from a black owned restaurant. Maybe once a month, you're going to make sure that you just support a black owned business. It's all about intentionality. We have Instagram and everything else under the sun. If you don't live in a place where there's a ton of black owned businesses, research, figure it out. You can do it. I saw a post today around just like black owned companies that were making masks. Buy a mask from a black owned company, right? So it's just making sure that it's, to me, this whole thing is about intentionality. No one's asking you to go out here and be a martyr, but like just turn your eyes on, turn your ears on, be more aware of what's happening around you and be intentional about your voice, your money, your vote, like all of those sorts of things to help move the needle so that this doesn't become just like a moment in time, but like an actual movement and change. Well, I know that it's important for us on these heavy conversations and really all conversations that we deliver some actionable items and resources to our listeners that they can have easy access to things to do, things to read, things to watch. So if you want to sign up for an email that will have things accessible for those who want them, even if you feel like you may not be for you, but we also encourage you guys to share them with your friends and family to make sure that the message is spread. And our, again, goal is just to help give a platform, build awareness, and have these uncomfortable conversations and to be just very conscious and purposeful with what our action steps are. We don't want to be just posting and having a huge thumbs up. We want to link arms and just listen intently and listen with purpose. And I think we can try to together move the needle. So we appreciate you being on, Erin. Of course. No, I appreciate y'all having me. I always welcome this sort of conversation. It's important. We do not get better as a community if we are too scared to talk and ask and all of that. So like I also champion you guys for being willing to ask the questions, even offline. You guys are always like, hey, Aaron, what do you think about this? Like I appreciate that. And I'm excited for this platform and what you guys are doing. So I'll ask one final question. Sure. What's your biggest fear for Drexel if nothing comes from this? Like most moms, at most black moms at this point is like something happening to him. Him getting in a situation, I feel like my biggest fear is just in general as a parent is like you can prepare your kids, you can teach, you can give them everything under the sun. And sometimes one split second, one moment, one decision changes the entire course of their life. And so I think if we learn anything from George Floyd, it's like the last person he was calling out for was his mother as a grown man, right? And so that idea of not being able to help him, not being able to save him, like that probably is my biggest fear of not being able to save my son and protect my son, no matter what I do. Uh, we promise we will do our part in every way possible that we can to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because I would literally take Drexel in as my own. I know. I know you mean that. I know that for sure. We love you so much. Thank you for being here. Today. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, tune in for next episode of Make It With Hot Sauce and Moses. Yay.